Hello, Pranhaunda. Good afternoon. Welcome to this thesis theatre with Taylor Johnson-Guinan, who's going to tell you all about the hard work that she's put into her thesis in just a few moments. So welcome everybody who's chosen to come and join us today. Um, if you wish to ask any questions at any point, can I ask you to preferably use the Q&A box to put questions into? I will keep an eye on the chat as well, just in case, but if you have questions, it's easier for me to keep an eye on them if they go into the Q&A. And please do feel free to put questions into the q and I'll be delighted to relay them to Taylor as we go. Okay, in that case, uh, let me introduce Taylor to you. So Taylor Johnson Guinan holds a Bachelor of Arts in Secondary Education with an emphasis in English from Arizona State University. In the Honours Programme, she wrote her senior thesis on the benefits of using science fiction and fantasy literature in the classroom, accompanied by an implementable uh, curriculum, all titled The Origins of Science Fiction and Fantasy in British Literature. In 2015, she published a review of Shadow of the Wolf by Tim Hall in the Journal of Adult and Adolescent Literature. And at the 2021 Myth Moot, she presented the paper, The Dystopian Looking Glass, Propaganda in Harry Potter and the Hunger Games. Uh, and today she's going to talk to you all about her thesis. And her thesis is entitled, uh, pardon me, I'm just going to it, Only in Dying Life, Ventures into the Land of the Dead in Children's Fantasy Literature. So welcome, Taylor. I'm really looking forward to hearing you talk all about your thesis today. Yeah, I'm excited. So <laughs> I'm excited to share this with everyone. Excellent. Okay, so let's get started straight away. Um, I'm going to ask you the first question, which is, can you start by giving us all a brief overview of your thesis? Absolutely. All right, let me, I have a small presentation, so I'm going to go ahead and share my screen. Uh, there you go. So, um, my thesis uh, focuses primarily on the lands of the dead, the physical location, um, that the uh, characters usually travel to. So um, I started noticing a few trends in the depictions of lands of the dead in modern children fantasies literature. Um, and uh, so I decided to focus on three main things. Where is it located? What is it like? And the overall effect on the characters. Um, so first, the land of the dead is normally located beyond life. Um, sometimes it's located in the West um, sometimes it's an unidentified location just beyond um, the realms of our living world. Uh, in the novels, um, sometimes death is able to re-enter life. The dead are able to return to life. And whenever that happens, uh, it makes life deadly for the living. Uh, and it usually ends up perpetuating the issue because as more people die due to the dead, it creates more dead and it's, it's a self-perpetuating problem. Um, and so this led to the natural question is, should the living and the dead be naturally separated? Are they meant to be separated? And uh, I found that in the graveyard book, The Furthest Shore, The Amber Spyglass, uh, The Lightning Thief, The Red Pyramid, Lockwood and & Co, and The Old Kingdom, um, the living and the dead are naturally separated. It is explicitly stated in some of the books that the living and the dead are not meant to interact. Um, the exception to this was Harry Potter, um, uniquely enough. And uh, instead in Harry Potter, there seems to be a spectrum and uh, you, you could be somewhat alive or somewhat dead and, and somewhere in between. 
And then lastly, Earthsea and the Ember Spyglass, uh, specifically um, the other wind, Earthsea, um, they revise this opinion on separation um, and eventually reveal that it's, it's more of a cyclical pattern. Life leads to death, which then leads back into life. Um, so that was where it's located. And then the characteristics of the lands of the dead. Many of the lands of the dead echo life. Um, there are many, you know, either towns or, or mirrors of towns or, or um, you know, just elements of things that we would see in a normal living world um, in death. However, they're normally run down or dying or decaying. And so what, what ended up being created was this juxtaposition of a living town versus a dying town. And it really um, just emphasizes the land of the dead's difference from life and its lack of stability, right? Again, it's decaying, it's falling apart. Um, and it also seems to remind the characters of what they're losing in death. Um, lands of the dead are also usually cold, dark, or gloomy or some combination of all of those things. Um, surprisingly, death is not fiery and flaming, which is uh, I think a common conception um, in our modern society, but in these books, um, it's almost always cold. Um, light and color are often used to contrast death and life. Um, so things get darker the further into the lands of the dead that you go. Um, and ultimately it just becomes a very unpleasant place to be. Um, lands of the dead are also usually some combination of torturous, depressing, or dangerous. Um, and uniquely, this, this is one of the things that really stuck out to me was that it's not dependent on your deeds in life. Um, with the exception of Percy Jackson, uh, all of the other ones, everybody ends up in the same place no matter what they do. Um, and usually it can be some sort of torturous prison. Um, one of the uh, motifs was this idea of endless nothingness where you just stand there for eternity, doing nothing, feeling nothing, um, which I would find torturous. Um, so we get this, this depressing and gloomy place um, that's very dangerous for the living um, and even sometimes for the dead, it, it can be dangerous even for them, which just reinforces how unpleasant it, it is. Fortunately, almost all of these books um, create or, or make the unpleasantness a temporary state that leads to a second stage of death, which ultimately is more hopeful and more peaceful. So for example, um, some of the books create an appreciation for life and death, each in their own turn. Um, so for example, in the graveyard book, Bod, right, he learns to live and accept death in its proper time. Um, another, another piece of uh, hope is, uh, is this idea of hope through rebirth back into life. Um, so we see Earthsea's inhabitants unbuild the wall that separates the living from the dead, and they're able to go back and be reborn into the living world. And we see Lyra in the Amber Spyglass changing the nature of the land of the dead so that the dead can re-enter life, right? Their particles um, re-enter and become new life, which is more hopeful uh, than, than standing forever in the land of the dead. Um, Percy Jackson is one of the ones that is unique in, well, it is more unique than the others um, because 
Percy Jackson is inspired to live heroically uh, because that is the one book where what you do in life does matter. It depends on where you end up. Um, and so Percy is encouraged to live heroically in order to reach Elysium, which is the, uh, the best place in, um, in the lands of the dead, in the underworld. And then lastly, we get this, um, the, the most common um, result is hope in the unknown that lies beyond the land of the dead. Um, so in Harry Potter, in the Red Pyramid, in Lockwood and Co., and in the Old Kingdom, uh, we don't know what lies beyond the land of the dead, but it is universally better than what is in the land of the dead and what we can imagine death to be like. That's absolutely fascinating, Taylor. It really is. Uh, would you mind um, stopping sharing for a moment? Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you. Okay. Um, I mean, there's so many books just in your choice there. Um, so it's absolutely fascinating. But how did you actually choose your topic? What made you feel so drawn to this topic? Um, so it all started um, as an undergrad, actually. And a very wise uncle of mine told me that I needed to choose whatever topic or thesis I'm writing on, I need to choose a topic that's already related to, to what I'm studying. Um, and so I knew I wanted to write about some of my favorite books, um, especially the more obscure ones like The Old Kingdom and The Lockwood and Co. Um, I just want everybody to read them because they're so good. <laughs> and so keeping all of that in mind, I was uh, in the Gothic literature class. And at one point I was like, hmm, there are a lot of children's novels that contain death. That's really weird. I wonder why, um, especially since I know a lot of parents nowadays are super protective of what they allow their children to read and to watch. And so I was like, this just doesn't seem to compute. So what's going on here? And then uh, over the next few semesters, I had this like running list of children's books that contained death. And I quickly realized that there were just too many. <laughs> to, to, so I needed to pick, nope, I needed to narrow my focus. And so I looked at my favorite ones on the list and I realized one of the overarching similarities was a depiction of the land of the dead where the characters actually visit a mm. land of the dead. And so that's that's how I went with that. So it's amazing. It goes all the way back to your Gothic literature class. That's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> now, one of the things that I picked up on when reading your thesis is that when looking at modern children's fantasy authors, you compared them to authors of the past. Um, so how would you say that modern children's fantasy authors differ from previous authors, ones from way back? Um, so I wanna first off by saying, I didn't do an exhaustive read of authors from previous generations. I mean, if you even just look at the number of books that I read for this paper alone, um, I think it was like 17 novels. So I didn't exactly have time to go and do an exhaustive read of every children's fantasy uh, book of the past. So this is a little bit selective, but what I was noticing from authors of previous generations is that their books seem to be particularly religious or religiously didactic. Um, so for example, in C.S. Lewis's um, Narnia Chronicles, right, we have Aslan's country, which is supposed to be this representation of heaven. Um, and then it's not exactly a children's novel, but it is fantasy. We have uh, Tolkien's Leaf by Niggle, um, which portrays a workhouse and these green fields that Niggle goes into. And these seem to be a form of purgatory that eventually leads to a heaven. Um, so both of them, both of these fantasy and then C.S. Lewis and children fantasy authors are portraying this land of the dead for, for religious purpose. Um, modern authors 
draw very heavily from religious ideas, but not for a religious purpose. None of them are trying to convert um, believers to, or children into a specific faith. Um, so in, in these, these modern, we, we see the land of the dead in modern children's fantasy novels, that it's not heaven, right? The, even, even the place beyond, um, even if it's not specified what it is, it's never identified as a heaven. Um, and then with the exception of the graveyard book and the lightning thief, um, the modern authors create hope, not in death itself, not in the lands of the dead itself, but in what comes after them. Uh, so there's this hope in, in what, what comes beyond that. And uh, so, but yeah, like I said, death is, is never explicitly heaven. What comes beyond is never explicitly heaven. Um, and interest again, with the exception of the lightning thief, because it's not based on deeds, like there's no incentive for a changed life to reach it, right? So again, these modern authors are drawing on religious elements, but not for religious purposes. Okay, that, that's really interesting. Um, there's a question from Sparrow that's come into the Q&A, um, if you want to open the Q&A. And I think this really follows on from what you were just saying. So Sparrow asks, what proportion of the books you studied have hope of something beyond the cold and boring standstill, depressing death? So I've been defining beyond um, as something that we never actually reach. Um, so the, the four, I listed them out earlier, but there were four novels that do that. The Harry Potter series, or series, I guess. Harry Potter series, The Red Pyramid, Lockwood and Co. and The Old Kingdom all have a space beyond that we never actually see. And so I would say 50% of them have this hope in something beyond that beyond this dark and gloomy space. However, it depends on how you define beyond because in um, The Amber Spyglass and in Earthsea, right? The beyond is back into life. Mm -hmm. And so it just, it I, depends on your definition, but I would even possibly say six, six of the eight series that I've been looking at actually have this hopeful um, space beyond. The only two that don't really do that are the graveyard book, right, where the graveyard is the place of hope. Um, it's the place of community that Bod uh, goes to. And then you have, um, what's the other one? Uh, Percy Jackson, uh, mm -hmm. The Lightning Thief, where the place of hope is just a small portion of the land of the dead. It's Elysium, right? You don't want to be in the fields of Asphodel or the fields of punishment. You want to be in Elysium. So a very large portion, a very large percent of the books uh, mm -hmm. make that last place a place of hope. Okay. Now I'm going to take you back to some of the things you were mentioning um, when you were talking about comparing modern children's fantasy authors to previous ones. And you, were, you started to touch on this idea of religion. Mm. So what religions or mythologies do modern children's fantasy novels primarily draw inspiration from? All of them. <laughs> That's what I was noticing. So the most popular one, I think unsurprisingly, is ancient Greek. Uh, so we have References to Homer's Odyssey, Virgil's Aeneid, Dante's Inferno, um, which I guess is not technically Greek, but more Italian, um, even though it is very heavily ancient Greek uh, influenced. Um, and any, any of the Greek myths, uh, very, very heavily popular in modern literature, modern children's fantasy literature. Um, but we also have ancient Egyptian, 
We have the Hebrew uh, belief in Sheol. We have Christianity, um, Buddhism, and Taoism, and uh, even <laughs> some books drew inspiration from multiple religions all at once and kind of created this like hodgepodge, like every, you know, like fusion of all these different religious elements. Um, but one of the, the things that I really took away from this was despite all these different sources, right? Despite all these different religions and concepts of the land of the dead and how dying uh, and the process of dying works, the result seems to be the same. Like all of these authors seem to be doing the exact same thing with all of these disparate elements, um, right? They're creating hope despite the darkness, despite the fear, right? Despite this, this like horrific land of the dead, right? It, it's ultimately ending in hope. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. It just, it almost seems strange, doesn't it, that the land of the dead and this sort of issue is, is so prevalent in children's literature. I mean, why are the lands of the dead so popular in children's literature specifically? Um, so this, I think it stems from a, a, psycholo a, a psychological need that children have. Um, so uh, going all the way back to my undergraduate years where I, I learned about Bruno Bettelheim. Uh, he's a, a child psychologist uh, who has long argued and long argued, I, I don't think he's alive anymore, but he long argued that children need spaces to work out their fears. Um, and I know he's not the only psychologist who thinks this. Um, and I think modern authors, uh, perhaps because their own childhood novels didn't contain this, um, and perhaps they they still needed to work through these um, these issues. Uh, realize that children benefit from reading about a topic that they might find unknown and scary, right? Mm -hmm. And I mean, children are the furthest removed from death, right? Nowadays, most deaths occur in hospitals rather than in homes, right? So they don't see people dying. Um, and again, parents, many parents are trying to shield their children from things that might be more traumatic, like death. And so children have this disconnect from this very natural process that, you know, they used to see in their homes, you know, you know, as you know, back in back in the day before we had hospitals um, the way that we have them nowadays. And so I think it, it, I think it all started if we go back in time, it all started in the Victorian era right before the Victorian era children heard the same stories as adults, which included terror, woe and death. Right. They lived in the homes. They saw their their family members passing away. Um, and in modern times, that isn't the case. Right. We we don't read the same stories. Right. We have children genre as a specific genre that is different than every other genre. Um, and and we, we as adults, as the authors are specifying what children should or shouldn't be reading. Um, and so there's just this disconnect. And I think that death is a natural part of life and children will still experience loss e and death even if we shield them from it. Um, and so authors like the ones that I, I looked at here really offer a way for children to come to terms with their loss on a, um, in an internal uh, literary way. Mm -hmm. and, and it's interesting that you're talking about that and you've connected that to how surprising it is that it's so prevalent because 
parents now want to shield their children from that which is uncomfortable and confrontational and all that sort of thing. Um, because we also at the moment, we have a prevalence of books being banned. Um, and I wonder if we can draw some connections there. If you look in the Q&A, Chris Swank has actually put a question in there and it actually says, congratulations on completing your thesis. I'd love to make clear at this moment, actually, it was Chris Swank, thank you so much, Chris, who was the main supervisor for Taylor's thesis. Um, I only picked up at the end. Most of the work was done by Taylor and Chris together. So thank you so much, Chris, for everything you did to help Taylor. But Chris asks, in the current craze for banning books from schools in the United States, are there any of the books on your list that are being banned? And if so, is this because of the depictions of death or religion or something else? I think one of the books is definitely um, that I, I know is being banned is Harry Potter. Okay. Yeah. I think I would need to... <laughs> I don't, I haven't seen a current list of banned books, which is, I think, the hindrance to me answering this question, which, yeah, yeah. Um, but I could definitely see it happening. Um, yeah, Harry Potter, I know, has consistently been either banned or unbanned in schools, uh, very controversially. Um, I would guess that His Dark Materials, um, that the Amber Spyglass, which is the third book, uh, Amber Spyglass is the third book in His Dark Materials, I would guess has also been a, a more consistently, um, banned novel. I do know that uh, Garth Nix's books was banned at one point because I saw a post on some social media platform where they were talking about having a little library out of their locker and one of the books was Sebriel. Um, but I, yeah, I definitely think that parents are very careful and they're rightly so. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to judge parents for protecting their children are rightly so careful about what their children can be exposed to. And these books can have elements in them that perhaps are, that parents may question if they've never actually read them themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and I would definitely, I would agree that I do think it goes back to death and religion, specifically, honestly, religion. Um, I would say that that's probably the more controversial issue, but death, again, also a very big thing. I think one of the nice things about many of these books is even though we travel to the land of the dead, um, it not necessarily mean that we see lots of gruesome deaths. Uh, that is something that I think these authors do really well is even though they portray the land of the dead as being scary, they're not out there to try and like terrify children with like gruesome and bloody death scenes. Um, mm -hmm. I can't think of I think the only one on my list that really does that is um, Garth Nix. The dead are fairly terrifying. Um, <laughs> um, but, or even possibly Lockwood and Co. But even there, it's, it's, it's more muted. Um, again, these are children's books. They're not, they're not intended to terrify. Um, so. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. Thank you. I mean, it's, it's such a controversial area, isn't it? This idea of, of banning books and um, whether that should be a thing or at all and for what reason are books being banned and have the people banning the books actually even read the books or understood the books. Um, so yes, yeah, I, I agree that religion possibly plays a big part in it. I know with the Harry Potter books, it's objection to the idea of witchcraft is the main uh, reason that's cited rather than the idea of the, of the dead in it. Um, 
and I would be interested to hear the justification for the banning of the amber spyglass. But again, I yeah. probably that's going to come from a, a religious belief mm -hmm. kind of optic. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Right. So, um, next question I want to ask you then. Earlier, you said that the primary goal is hope. Uh, and you answered Sparrow's question by saying that the vast majority of the books that you have been reading actually have very hopeful ideas of the dead. But if the primary goal is hope, why describe death as so cold, dark, gloomy, torturous, depressing and dangerous in the first place? Okay, I have, I have another slide I'm going to share. Okay. Slide. It has a quote, so that's why. <laughs> okay. So if the primary goal is hope, why describe the land of the dead as they do? I think first it goes back to because it acknowledges the fear that I think we all have as humans, right? Um, whether we want to admit it or not, we all fear what comes next. Um, so the authors, you know, taking that fear that we all naturally feel make the land of the dead a little bit scary. Um, it, it also, I think, plays into our expectations of what the land of the dead should be like. Um, like we expect the land of the dead to be scary. We expect the land of the dead to be torturous. Like this is, this is something that our modern culture just like, I think would expect of a land of the dead. Um, so they portray it that way before shifting then into something more hopeful. And um, I, I have a quote here from Dominic Beecher and I think it's because he really, really emphasizes, or he emphasizes really well um, this idea that the psychological impact that scary stories have on readers, um, right? While these stories may contain terrifying elements, it will always return to this place of comfort. Um, so here, here's the quote. Although these stories contain terrifying Gothic horror, they conclude on the soft and contained the familiar side of safety and comfort. This positive approach towards death subverts the horror genre. There is comfort in the certainty of a sublime and beautiful death, an observation that all too go often goes unnoticed in our modern society, which most of the time embraces a lifestyle and adolescent attitude towards death, pretending we are all immortal. Um, and then Angelina Sabroma, I think, summarizes this, which is death then is stripped of its gothic horror, right? By portraying something as scary, but then always and following up the scary with something familiar, something hopeful, something peaceful. That death, that, that scary thing is no longer terrifying. Okay, so... That then links in with your idea that um, having the land of the dead in children's literature is an excellent way for children to actually encounter something like death and learn to work through it. Yes. Yeah. I mean, so I, I've always been a big reader, but when children are able to encounter things that terrify them in safe places, it allows them to come to a better personal understanding of it. They're able to, you know, know what to expect. They're able to ask questions, right? They're able to pr process things that perhaps 
they won't be able to process, especially on a topic that is so taboo, um, a topic that maybe even parents who are moral, more, they're further along the process towards their own death are not as comfortable to talk about. And so books create this safe space where children can encounter these things that they need to work through that, that psychologically is important to their development um, and, and come to some sort of healthier place uh, with it. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Okay, Sparrow's actually put another question into the Q&A, which I'd love to bring up here. Uh, and this is kind of very specific to these books that you're reading as like a, a specific, you know, a part of the plot sort of thing. Um, she asks, is there something universally special about characters who enter Deathland and return? Is it a particular trait or is it only that they're the lead characters and therefore that's what's supposed to happen? Okay, let me think about it. Mm. I'm looking through, I'm thinking through my list. <laughs> um, I think Sparrow, <laughs> you're onto something that they are the lead character. <laughs> um, that seems to be the consistency is that these books that focus on the land of the dead have the, the main characters go to the land of the dead for some reason. Um, and it's interesting. And this I think is actually brought up, well, it's not brought up in multiple of them. The one that's coming to mind is uh, the lightning thief where um, Percy and his friends are trying to get into the land of the dead. And Karen, the ferryman is like, you guys won't be returning. Like this is a one-way trip, don't you understand? And they're like, no, no, we'll understand. We, we, you know, we'll come back. Don't you worry. And he's like, no, like going to the land of the dead is one way trip. And if you think traditionally, like mythologically, that is usually the case. Um, if you think about even like Orpheus and Eurydice, right? Orpheus goes to the land of the dead in order to get Eurydice, but he's not, you know, the only reason he is able to return is because of his music and, and uh, Eurydice she makes it part way, but then doesn't make it all the way. And so there's just this history of you have to be, I mean, you have to be special. You have to be a demigod or um, uh, an abhorsen or um, uh, a wizard, right? In order to go to the land of the dead and return. Um, and I think the only exception to this is the graveyard book where it's just a random child that wanders into the graveyard. But even then, that random child had a had a prophecy about him, which is why he got driven to the graveyard in the first place. So maybe he's not as ordinary as he see as nobody Owens. His name even is is very um, like uh, trying to paint him as like this this nobody character, but even he is special. Um, so yes, I would say that the um, these characters are all very special characters. Yeah, and Lyra is a prophecy child too. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Um, and even Harry, I think the only, again, Harry Potter, prophecy child, he's the one that gets to visit. So yeah, I, they are all very special individuals. This is why the books are written about them, right? We don't usually read books about your average normal human being who doesn't do anything and is special for no reason. Um, and there's something else I was going to say along that. Um, oh, well, I lost it. <laughs> Come back. I'm sure. Um, so yeah, I suppose that, you know, once you start working through it, 
you can see that actually everybody who goes into the land of the dead and the important bit is and returns. Earns. Yeah, that's actually, that's what it was. I was going to say, um, it's almost not that I would want to say that these char- these authors are, are, um, are using this specifically, but it's almost like plot armor. These characters are the most important, so they can go to the land of the dead and return because guess what? There's usually another book or they're, they need to come back in order to save the world. Um, and so they have this sort of protection around them and the, the authors come up with reasons why they can come back despite it being so deadly and dangerous for the living, so. Okay, thank you. That was a fun question. Thank you, Sparrow. <laughs> okay, so let's come back to, we've been talking quite a bit about the books themselves and everything you got out of it. So let's come back to you. Um, and I'm going to ask you if there was anything that surprised you during your research. So I've mentioned a couple of things already that have surprised me. Um, another thing another element that surprised me about this research is the overall inclusiveness of death. Um, These novels really highlighted the fact that we all fear death in some fashion. Um, You're afraid of heights? It's because you're afraid of falling and dying. You're afraid of sharks? Because you're afraid the shark is going to eat you and you're going to die. Um, You're afraid of spiders? Um, You're afraid the spider is going to, you know, sting you and you're going to die or you know, attack you or, you know, um, all of these fears, all of the smaller fears ultimately lead back to the larger fear, which is death. Um, and this is, I think, because we fear the unknown, you know, we, I mean, very, nobody has, has, nobody alive today has died and come back and been like, this is actually what death is like, at least nobody that we can actively trust as a source. Um, it's just, you know what I mean? Like there is no, we don't know. We don't know what comes next. Um, and inclusively all people die, right? Um, this is something that as a, as a unifying factor amongst all people groups and all nations and all languages, everybody will die. Um, so it's just this, this universal, again, inclusiveness of death. In addition, um, overwhelming in the, overwhelmingly in these books, all people receive the same fate, no matter their deeds. Again, the exception is Percy Jackson. That one kind of lives in its own little uh, uh, universe. But other than that, everybody receives the same fate. So you have, you know, the murderer and the the child, right? The innocent child. And they end up in the same location, no matter what they did. Um, and, And lastly, again, inclusiveness, this is something we all must face, right? It's something that unites us as human beings. And it seems to supersede any other elements that divides us. And I think these authors, despite using all of these different religions, are, are really emphasizing that. Like, this is something we all must face. This is something that unites us, that, that brings us together. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yes, death being the, the ultimate unknown. Uh, right, exactly. As humans, we're not very good at dealing with the unknown. We're happiest when we can put a label on something and say, that's what this thing is. I therefore understand it. But as soon as we're handed something that is utterly unknowable, then yeah, yeah. that's freaky for us, isn't it? Psychologically. Which is, I think, why we have so many um, religions and mythologies. And so it's very interesting that even thousands of years ago, these cultures that created these religions and mythologies 
you know, were so intrigued and scared by the unknown that they created these stories that now we are in our modern day referencing back to these stories to do basically the same thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. I mean, you're right. I mean, one of the great purposes of religion is to uh, explain uh, what happens to you after death mm-hmm. and to provide hope. And of course, that's what a lot of people find in religion is that uh, that sense of comfort and hope that people who have died in their lives will, um, I don't know, for Christianity, go to heaven or, you know, whatever. Uh, and that there is then this chance that they can meet up again in the afterlife, if you like. And it's, it's a comfort, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it's not just, I suppose, what I'm trying to get at is that in these books you've been looking at, Uh, it's in many ways it's about helping children to confront something that is so confrontational in the safe space that you were mentioning but at the same time it could also be seen as the author working through their own ideas about death and perhaps exploring them in their own way do you think I yes I definitely agree especially knowing that everything that we do now is usually a reaction to what came before Um, And so looking at how some of the most popular children's fantasy authors of the past were so um, focused on certain things, I think that we, these are novels, are reactions to that. Um, Again, it's, literature is always a conversation. So I think that they are conversing with each other, um, even across decades and and, and times. So. Mm -hmm. Okay. So again, coming back to you and your process, Was there anything that you wanted to include in your thesis that you had to leave out or aspects that you wanted to pursue but couldn't? I mean, obviously, these theses have a kind of a word limit, so there's only so much space within it. So what was something, for example, that you had to let go of? There were, again, as I I mentioned earlier, there were like 45 novels that I had on my list of things, of novels that included death. Um, whether actual characters dying like as a major theme or um, uh, so there was just there was a lot of lot of material to work with and so there were a lot of paper topics that I was like ooh, that would be fascinating and I had to just like write it scribble it down on a note uh, note card so that I could come back to it uh, in the future Um, the first one that really popped into my head is why is living forever and avoiding death always the trait of a villain Um, so we have Voldemort, we have Cobb, we have Marissa Fitch, we have Hedge and the other necromancers. So is it inherently bad to want to live forever? Um, Or is it only the way in which you go about living forever that matters? So I I would love to explore that in greater detail because um, that does seem to be a theme in these novels is that the bad guy always wants to extend his life, always wants to live forever. And I do think it goes back to, I mean, I I haven't explored it extensively, but again, I think this goes back to that fear of the unknown, right? Why do they want to live forever? You know, because they fear the unknown, they fear death. Um, And another one is the forms that the dead take. So this was actually, I have, it was a whole section that I had to cut out of my paper um, because it just didn't quite fit. And um, sometimes the dead in the land of the dead are physical, like you can physically touch them. Sometimes they're spiritual. So why is that? What, what is the delineating factor between the two? Um, and sometimes, in, especially in Earthsea, they are spiritual beings, 
but you can physically touch them and they can hurt you. And so I'm like, why, what is this overlap? Like why? Um, but anyway, so the forms that the dead take, um, sometimes they're static, right? They don't change over time. And some of them are decaying as they, as they stay in the land of the dead. So what's going on with the dead and why are they being depicted um, similarly and or differently from each other? Um, another theme that I don't think would be as long as a thesis, but could be a paper topic uh, is what's up with the stars? So in most of these lands of the dead, they either feature or do not feature explicitly stars in the sky. And um, I, my, my instant gut reaction is that stars are this, this comforting thing when we, when it's dark outside and it's nighttime and we look up and we see these stars, right? It's a, it's a comfort that there's some light. They, we use them to, to guide us, whether, you know, on land or in the ocean, right? Um, and so I have a feeling it has to do with that sense of familiarity. Um, but yeah, so what's up with the stars? Uh, I would also love to explore modern figures of death. So for example, in the, the graveyard book, we get the lady on the gray, who is this very kind, peaceful, serene individual um, who the, all of the dead look to with like admiration, not fear. Um, especially if you compare that to Neil, some of Neil Gaiman's other death figures uh, in, in the Sandman, he has this like female death who's kind of like this punk rocker uh, figure. And so it'd be cool to compare the figures of death, uh, especially if you compare it to something like Percy Jackson's Hades, who mm -hmm. is, you know, this like powerful king-like figure. Um, yeah, so I would love to look at that. And then another thing, and this was brought to my attention by um, some of the other classes I've taken, other students have paid attention to color as they're reading, like reoccurring colors. And I would love to look at the color and or lack of color and how, like I mentioned that as the characters get further into death, it usually gets darker um, and the colors seem to, to fade away. They get sucked out of, um, of the like lifelessness, like it's being sucked out of them. Um, and so I would love to look more closely at what's going on with the color because that definitely seems to be a thing that most of these authors are doing um, is talking about color. So yeah, so those, those were some of the things I wanted to include in my thesis, but just either couldn't because of time or space, um, but I would love to pursue in the future. <laughs> Goodness, I think if you incorporated all of those, you'd actually have to go and write another master's thesis. That's I, yeah, I, it could be in a whole novel. I could have a whole novel all about Lands of the Dead. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, all of that stuff together. I mean, that's, that would be the yeah. size of a PhD thesis. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it sounds to me like there's some really interesting things to pursue there for perhaps conference papers or something like that. Yeah. I'm Definitely. particularly drawn to that um, idea you have there about the the villain um, mm -hmm. wanting to live forever. That's fascinating. Um, yeah. Because that's actually, that is discussed at one point in Harry Potter about Lord Voldemort. And mm -hmm. the fact that actually he wants to be immortal because he's kind of scared of death itself. Yeah. Um, and that for somebody who has gone so far into darker magic that death uh, and and what that would bring is more terrifying for someone like him uh, yeah. in fact it's when it, it's in that land of the dead moment isn't it king's cross when harry meets dumbledore and dumbledore actually talks about uh voldemort and death so i'm yeah. sorry I could go on about this forever because it sounds absolutely yeah. fascinating but there's some yeah. really interesting topics to cover there well, 
So you have Voldemort and then you have Cobb, who mm -hmm. Cobb is from um, Earthsea and he is the one that kind of upends the balance um, by living forever and creating this like hole in the world. Um, and that is that is who uh, Ged and Aaron have to go and stop essentially. Um, and so it's fascinating because he is, what is his motive behind doing this, right? Why is he doing this? Um, some of the some of these these villains like Hedge and uh, and the other necromancers and and Abhorson very clearly fear death also like Voldemort, but some of them do it for power. So one of the novels in the Abhorson series in the the Old Kingdom series is Clariel, and she becomes a necromancer. Um, she becomes one of the the big villains or I guess smaller villains and um in contrast to some of the bigger villains. Um, um, she becomes one of the small villains in, in the, the, the novels, um, but she did it for power, right? Mm -hmm. She wasn't a fear of death. It was, it was, she was trying to get more power. So I would definitely love to explore, is it, is it a fear of death? Is it more power? Um, because mm -hmm. I, I think that that seems to be the two, the two answers that I've found so far is that they're either seeking power that they shouldn't be seeking or they want to live forever because they fear what they don't know. So yeah, yeah, oh, definitely an interesting paper topic. <laughs> uh, absolutely fascinating. Something to come back to when you've had the moment to breathe after finishing this. <laughs> okay, what I would like to kind of end on is a question that I like to ask people once they've got this far. I mean, let's face it, you have done all of those courses at Signum. You have gone through the entire thesis process and now here you are out the other side. This is you. You have passed this master's thesis and passed your entire master's course, which, by the way, congratulations. <laughs> there are people here in the audience who are current students. I wonder if you have any advice for them about the thesis process itself. Is there anything that you would pass on to them as good advice for approaching it, working through it, coming out the other end? Um, yeah, I would. So first off, I would go back to what my uncle once told me, uh, which is whatever you choose, make sure it's something that you're kind of already doing. Um, so I was already taking lots of classes where we were reading science fiction and fantasy literature that included children's lit. Um, and so I was able to not have to go and read a million other novels um, mm -hmm. because I'd, I'd already read most of these, right? Um, so choose something that you're already doing so you don't have to do more work than is necessary. Choose something you love. Um, this was definitely a, a, a difficult process. It, it took a lot of hours and a lot of frustration and a lot of hair pulling and just, you know, it, it took a lot of work. So you need to make sure that whatever topic you choose, you do love it because, um, that will make the process so much easier. Um, find people that you can work with. Um, so both uh, uh, Dr. Sarah Brown and, and Chris uh, Swank were awesome. I loved working with them. They uh, gave me new perspectives and new ideas. And I, I, I knew Chris Swank because I'd worked with her on other papers before. And so I knew like she would challenge me in the ways I needed to be challenged and come up with better ideas. And so I surround yourself on your thesis team with people that you know will make your paper better. Mm -hmm. um, and then, yeah, just just have fun with it and see where it goes. You, it won't end where you think it ends. <laughs> Actually, that last thing you said, I think is one of the most important elements of it. Most students I've worked with have started their thesis process with an idea of what they want to do. And then by the time they finished it, that idea has definitely morphed into something else. 
not necessarily completely different, but not exactly what they thought they were going to start off with. Yeah. And I think that's definitely true. I, a lot of this, like I said, came from that Gothic literature class and a particular paper um, by Dominic Future where he talks about the, um, this, that, that Gothic swing. And so I thought I was going to be focusing, not that these, these novels aren't all Gothic, but I thought I would be focusing much more on the Gothic elements of these books um, and specifically children's Gothic, ele Gothic elements in children's fantasy literature. Um, and so the fact that I actually zeroed in on the land of the dead and, and all of these religious aspects was definitely unexpected and unplanned for. Um, and especially the, that, the way in which almost all of these have a two-part, if not mo more, process of death, um, right? I think the graveyard book is the only one that has a single, like, you die and you go to the graveyard. Um, but like Ursi, it's a cycle, right? You go to the land of the dead. Well, Ursi, it's a little bit more uncertain, um, but it seems to be that you die, you go to the land of the dead, and then you are released back into life. Um, his Dark Materials, you die, you go to the land of the dead, and then you're released back into life. So again, this two-part process. Um, the Lightning Thief, you go to Limbo, and then you go to the land of the dead. In Harry Potter, you go to this train station where you then board a train onto something beyond. Uh, the Red Pyramid, you ride the, you die, you ride the boat into um, the land of the dead, and then you get judged, and you either go to, so I guess that's another one where you do get judged based off your based off your actions, you get judged by the, the feather um, of, of Ma'at. Um, you, you go to the afterlife um, or you're eaten by Amit. Um, <laughs> and then in Lockwood & Co, you go to the other side and then you move on to something beyond, um, the other London, this bright, shiny other London. Um, and then Garth Nix actually has multiple stages, right? You have this like, you travel through these nine precincts of death before you hit the ninth precinct, which has the stars where you're sucked up into who knows what. So it's just this very like multi-process thing, this two, at least two step, if not more, um, was definitely unexpected, but is definitely a pattern that that is that is in these novels, so. Mm -hmm. So to come back to where we started with that, you stumbled across all of this and yeah. it became your thesis. Um, yeah. which was completely unexpected at the start. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so kind of adding on to this, um, Chris Swank wants to ask a question of you. Uh, okay. She asked if there are any books or, or a particular series that you wanted to include in your thesis, but you couldn't for whatever reason. Any particular books you can remember or think of? Not with my topic mm -hmm. there were a lot of books that contain death in them um lots of books that are about the dead that uh are that either contain death have a character that dies that has a major impact on characters um but for the most part because i think i narrowed my thesis so so I narrowed my thesis so much down to just books that portray the land of the dead. I was basically able to include all the books that I wanted to. Mm -hmm. um, I, and as far as I, I mean, obviously I didn't, I couldn't do an a completely exhaustive um, list of modern children's fantasy novels that can that contain the land of the dead. Cause that would just be impossible to do. Um, 
but I do, I do think I got as many as I could possibly think of that were recommended to me as, oh, this one also has a land of the dead and you should continue, you know, this should be in there. Um, so I think I did con contain, I did get to include everything that I really wanted to for this topic. Mm -hmm. Um, I definitely had to throw out novels that were, so for example, one of the novels that I think really, um, parallels my, what I, a lot of the themes that I talk about in my paper, um, is Lemony Snicket's, um, the series of unfortunate events, mm -hmm. which doesn't always necessarily specify death. I know the parents are dead, great. Cause they're orphans. Um, but the whole point of those novels is that bad things happen and then bad things continue to happen. And it doesn't matter how good of a person you are, right? Life will always continue to have bad things happen. Um, and I think that that is one of those things that, that children also need to come to terms with. And so it doesn't fit in my paper, but I do think it has a lot to say along the same line of that psych the importance of that psychological development that children need, right? That good things don't always happen to good people and bad things often happen to good and bad people. Um, mm -hmm. And so your actions don't necessarily determine uh, what you receive in life. Um, and so there are a lot of books that I think have similarities, have, have, you know, have something to say about this topic, but we're not, like I said, I, I tried to focus as specifically as I could on the land of the dead. So. Okay. Thank you. Well, that looks like all of the questions. So it just is left for me to say, well done. Well <laughs> done, Taylor. Uh, you've done a great job. You're all done. Congratulations. Uh, and it has been fascinating listening to you. Uh, Chris Bank says, super proud of you, Taylor. A thousand congratulations and the best of luck with your next adventures. And she's absolutely right to be proud of you. You had a lot to work through and you worked through it and you put a lot of hard effort into this thesis. Um, and you should be pleased and proud of yourself. So well done. You now get to take a little break before you do anything else academic, but hopefully there will be a next academic adventure, whether that's, you know, perhaps uh, publishing something or a conference paper or something like that. Uh, and uh, we would love to see and hear more from you and your academic work in the future. So uh, thank you very much, Taylor. Thank you. Okay, and thank you so much to everybody who joined us today. We appreciate the fact that you came and listened to Taylor's presentation. So thank you, everybody, and see you again at another Thesis Theatre at another time. Bye, everybody. <laughs>